This podcast is brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Thank you all for coming on time this evening. We're very lucky uh, tonight to have Joel Peterson at my right as our guest speaker, and he and I are going to have a conversation. I'm going to practice a lot of active listening, maybe pepper him with a few questions. You've all read Joel's bio online, and you know that probably took you 10 minutes. Joel has done so much. He looks very young, but he's accomplished much in his life. Um, he and I have run into each other a number of times. The thing that got us most recently acquainted is his oldest, Clint is your oldest? Oldest son. Oldest son. His oldest son took my class, and I ran into him at a conference, and he said, you know, my son is making us read this book, the whole family, and he's given us all copies of this book, and he's really caught up in this thing, and like, what are you teaching him? And um, so we had some fun with that. Joel started his career, he actually graduated from the other business school on the other coast, Harvard, um, and he finished there in 1973, was it? Uh, joined the Trammell Crow Corporation and had sort of a successful and meteoric rise to the top and was the managing partner um, by the time he was, what, 38? Something like that. 38, managing partner of the largest real estate development company in the world. Um, so hugely successful career. And one of the things that interests me most about Joel is he's not really a guy who's just done one thing well, but he's done lots of things well. So in addition to having lots of success um, in the professional real estate market, he started an uh, investment partnership now called Peterson Partners, and they've invested very successfully. I know of their success because we show them companies uh, to invest in. He invested in JetBlue, was one of the first guys to, to see the benefits of JetBlue and other companies that they've done very well. Um, Joel is very active uh, in the community. He's been teaching at Stanford for 13 years or so, 14, 14 years at the GSB. And we sort of, um, sort of share the notion that it's nice to have a foot in the practical world and a foot in the academic world. And I know he's not teaching for the money. I have direct experience and know that uh, he's doing it because he loves the students. And so we're just really lucky that he would take the time and share some of his thoughts around negotiating both transactions in the world that he's been in, negotiating career paths, um, and some of the things that you're interested in. So we'll take about 45 minutes, and I'll uh, talk to him a bit, and then open it up for questions for you guys, which will be a nice opportunity. So with that, Joel, it'd be good just to have you take 10 minutes or so and give your general framework um, and the way that you think about negotiation. I've, of course, been putting sort of theoretical models on the table and trying to talk about my practical experience but it'd be great for them to get a little different take and a different perspective. So just if I'm throwing it wide open, what's your take and how do you think about negotiation? Well, first of all, I, I would ask you a question. You've been in this class now six weeks. A little less. I think it's week four. Week four. So how many of you consider yourselves uh, expert at negotiation? <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on, your chance. <laughs> you, you need to get all the way to the end of the course before you feel that way? No hands? They're afraid that you're going to call on them, I think. Yeah, and they've got their name tags up, too, so I could do that. And half their grade do. is participation. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> well, I would say, not knowing really any of you, I know a couple of you uh, from the business school, but that you're all expert negotiators already before you entered this class. You have gotten to this point in your life through negotiations. And so that's kind of an answer to the question is I think of negotiation as sort of how we navigate our way through life. Uh, 
It's a series of conversations we have. You wouldn't be in at Stanford today without a series of negotiations, whether they're formal, written with the school, whether they were getting recommendation letters, whether they were getting your parents to provide you with whatever you needed to prepare to get. But you have been negotiating from the time you started talking and before. So I think that's one thing to think about. If you really think about negotiation as the whole series of conversations and trade-offs that you've made in your life to get where you are. And you have been very successful negotiators at this stage of your life. I put on the board here a couple of things that I'd like you to think about where you land on these continua. First one is, you know, are you a win-lose negotiator or a win-win negotiator? And people fall all along that continuum. You know, that some people think that negotiating, the other guy has to lose for them to win. That it's a zero-sum game, and so every discussion, and you'll see people in, in just interpersonal discussions, in family discussions, and wherever they're negotiating, they have to win and somebody has to lose. So where do you fall on that continuum? The second one is, uh, do you like the process of formal negotiations or do you prefer informal negotiations? And if you think about that, the, the formal negotiations are the kind that I did in the real estate world, which is this awkward, very formal offer, counter-offer, back and forth. There's a kind of a set of rules, and there are only a few variables. You deal with price, time frames, warranties, remedies. There's a few things that really define the negotiation, and it's a very structured sort of formal kind. Do you like that kind of stylized negotiation, or do you like the give and take that happens in a business setting, in a family setting. Where do you go? I used to play a negotiation game with my student when I taught the real estate course over at the business school. And I would ask the students for their personal take on negotiation because I made the same point to them. You've all been negotiating your whole life. Do you like it or not? Because we're now entering into a very stylized kind of offer, counter-offer. It's a three-party agreement between a lender, a buyer, and a seller. So it's got all kinds of rules to it. Do you like it or not? And a lot of people came back and they said, I hate this negotiation. I hate it. It makes me angry. It makes me nervous. And then I would ask them, do you like buying a car? And it was almost a one-to-one -one correlation. People who enjoyed the process of buying a car liked the horse trading in the formal, stylized uh, world. Uh, and they didn't so much often do as well in the informal world. So think a little bit about where you are in that continuum. And then the final one is uh, negotiating with insiders and outsiders. Stan mentioned to me a little earlier that he, he wants to talk a, a little bit about what is it like to negotiate inside a family or inside a partnership or to negotiate your career with people or whatever. And how is that different from coming to a contractual negotiation? And what are you more comfortable with? Because I would submit to you that you'll spend your whole life probably at a bunch of different places on these continuum. Continua. You will, you'll sort of migrate from end to end and you'll live within the bound. There are people who are extremes in those and I think the extremes are often not successful in all situations. I think you have, need to have a certain adaptability. So I guess my, my bottom line on, on sort of my framework for negotiations would be how to have successful, effective conversations with people to get what you want and to help them get what they want at a price that's acceptable to both of you. And the price isn't necessarily monetized, but it's where you're trading things and you both end up with what you want. That's a successful negotiation to me. So that's kind of my... Great. And it's interesting, I've been preaching a little bit the same thing. So they've heard the term win-win, they've read getting to yes. 
And I think at this point in the course, some of the students are saying, yeah, that, that's really great in theory, but the people I deal with don't see it that way. They don't necessarily play win-win. They're sometimes either difficult people, they use difficult processes, they use tactics, and if I try to do this win-win thing, I'm just going to get crushed. Um, how would you respond to that? I'd say the only way you get crushed is if you allow yourself to get crushed. You have to grant them the power to crush you in that kind of thing. So if you get intimidated, if you allow them to intimidate you or to roll over you, but if you really think through what, it, what are your interests and what are their interests, you should be able in an effective negotiation to describe the other party's interests as effectively as they can. And I think once you've been able to do that, it's very disarming. You know, and, and I actually tried in a lot of, I've tried in many, and I've negotiated billions of dollars worth of transactions, literally hundreds and hundreds of deals over 30 some years. I try to get to the point where I understand the, what the other party wants and I'm able to say it to them in a way that they relax. And they say, this guy knows better than I do. He's able to say better than I am what I want. That's a very disarming position. So if you're getting bowled over by somebody, you're, fe you're feeling crushed, it's because you have not done your homework. You've allowed them to do that, in my, in my view. You don't have to do that. Now, in real estate specifically, I certainly don't have your experience, but a lot of people think of real estate negotiations as some of the toughest. Um, it's a very kind of pound your fist on the table, yell and scream industry compared to some. And so you get a lot of tough personalities. How do you deal with that when someone's losing their cool? I'm sure you've been yelled at or people have used emotion in the negotiations. How do you disarm them and what have you used that's been effective doing that? You won't believe this, but I have never yelled in a negotiation. And I, but I have had people yell and shout. I had a really interesting experience one time that I think it was early enough in my career. Do you, do you mind if I sort of tell stories to illustrate? Um, <clears throat> I subscribe to that theory. Do you? Okay. I think people learn inductively. I really do. If I say just big general propositions and you have to funnel it through your experience, I don't think you learn as well as if I tell you a couple of stories that you'll relate to and then you can generalize them. So very early in my career, I was sit we had open offices and one of the very senior partners in our firm was negotiating a, a transaction and he was getting angrier and angrier. Somebody pushed his hot buttons. And so I saw him... Uh, you know, just get flushed, and he started to talk louder and louder. And because we were in open offices, I could hear more and more of the conversation until finally he just shouted, do your worst, and slammed the, door, the phone down. I mean, really loud. Well, it made an impact on our end, but I, I, as I thought about it, I thought, what did that do at the other end of the line? You know, it was just click. That was all it was, click. Because, and I thought, you know, isn't it silly? I mean, that was not an effective... Thing. And so I just decided to establish my baseline early on as a very calm baseline where I spoke in plain English. I was calm. I didn't curse. I didn't challenge people. I just, I did a lot of listening. And that baseline allowed me when I would say, I'm not going to do that. It was like I shouted back at them because the baseline, I varied from the baseline so slightly that I had a, a, a lot of power from a calm, low baseline. So, um, you know, I, there are emotional people in real estate. People do try to bowl you over. In the, it's a little bit the macho uh, negotiation. I always, you, you've read about batness. Um, I always tried to know my batness going into negotiation. There's a real calm and a peace you have if you know your best alternative. If you've really figured it out. And there's a point at which you say, gosh, I, it doesn't look like we'll be able to do something. 
I, I was negotiating one time with a very tough negotiator who had a reputation for horse trading. You know what horse trading is? That's if Stan says 100, I say 50. Stan says 90, I say 60. We're not basing it on anything. We, we've not done any analysis. This was a guy who loved horse trading. So if I went to a deal and did all, went with him, to him with a deal, and I'd done all my analysis and I said, okay, we need $10 million for this deal, he would say, eight. And I'd say, 10. He'd say, 8.5. I'd say, I'm sorry, but you must not have read the analysis. It's 10 million. But he'd say, 8.75. That's as far as I'll go. You know? And so I'd say, well, then we can't do the deal. Thanks so much for your time. And then I would go off. And I, I had figured out my best alternative was to have somebody else in the wings. And so that night, I called out to another investor and made a deal with him that night. And it was somebody that you know, was a credible guy that this fellow knew about. He called me back the next day and said, let's talk again about this deal. I think I can get it up to $9 million. I said, well, let's talk about the next deal because I've already done that one. That one's done. So I had this bat and it gave me a huge calm. I knew that I could do this deal somewhere else. And it also laid the groundwork for what I call serial negotiations. You know, where I could go back to him, he would know that I based my analysis, that I based my price on analysis, that I'd really thought it through. And when I said 10 million, I meant 10 million. Now, I would, I would sometimes trade a dime for two nickels, but I wouldn't trade a dime for six cents. You know, so I think that I think part of this, when you're really thinking about another continuum, will be sort of, are you a horse trader or are you sort of principle analysis based in your negotiation? And some people love horse trading. I mean, this guy, finally, I got to know him really well. We did about 120 equity deals uh, together over the years, probably a half a billion dollars worth of investment. One time he stopped me after we'd done a bunch of these things and he said, you know, Joel, I like, I like horse trading. Why don't you... Just remember that when you call me up next time. So the next time I'd call him and said, it'll be 10.5. And he'd say, how about 10? Okay. You know, I mean, it was just a game. He knew it. I knew it. But he liked the horse trading element of it. So uh, I guess another um, hidden point in that is think about the reputation that you want to have. Because I would submit to you that negotiations are all serial. You may think they're episodic. You may think it's a one-time deal with somebody, but your reputation follows you around. Somehow, in particular if you're in a deal business, the market gets to know who you are, whether you're a horse trader, whether you're fair, whether you're tough in the beginning, fair in the end, whether you, you really home in on the documents right away. I mean, they will know all these things about you. So think that through carefully. Think about developing your brand as a negotiator. That is your promise. That's the way you'll go about it. And if you're all over the map, if everything is situational and episodic, you're going to have a tougher time. You'll, you'll have far less uh, successful negotiations, I think. I'm giving really long answers, aren't I? Those are, those are effective. Oh. Um, it leads us nicely into a discussion that we've been having in the class around trust. You know, you're, you're advocating that relationship is important, your reputation is important. Trust has been an important element in some of the negotiations that we've been doing. Give us a little bit your take on how you build either a trustworthy relationship with a party or how you deal in an environment where there really isn't trust. Yeah, if there isn't, tr let's start with where there isn't trust. Because I think a lot of commercial transactions are really uh, the counterfeit of trust. It's kind of a phony trust. 
in that it's sort of mutual mistrust is really what it is. And that's why you document things carefully. So if you're dealing in this, in this world of mutual mistrust, I think it's good to just sort of recognize that and make sure you do document things. I think you can migrate that to, over time, to a series of trust relationships. And that's really how I believe you'll want to live your life, not only your personal life, but really your commercial life. Whatever you do, I think, I think trust is the lubricant for successful uh, business transactions. It's the, it's the lubricant for managing a career. It's the lubricant for uh, relationships up, down, and uh, east-west. You know, it's if you can build trust, there's power in trust. And I, I, and I uh, apologize to the business school students who've heard me say this, but I think trust is a function of three things that you want to really think about. One is character. You know, it's hard to trust somebody who doesn't have high character. If you know they're kind of sleazy and they don't have values, they don't uh, respect their values or your values, it's really hard to trust them. But if you just stop there with trusting based on their character, you'll run into trouble. And I always ask people, uh, who trusts their mother? Anybody in here trust their mother? Couple people. <laughs> Would you trust her to fly you to New York in a 747, Jay? Why not? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of limitations on the trust, you know. So it's people with high character that we trust because of their character, but we don't trust their competence. And that's just as important. If they're not competent to do the task we're trusting them to do, that is a, that's a foolish, naive trust. It will get you in trouble. It will disappoint you. There'll be either a breach of contract or there'll be some kind of a dispute that will arise over that. Well, what if she has uh, a pilot's license and, um, and very high character? What if, she's not, what if she's not licensed to fly out of the airport or to land in the airport? You can't do it again. So there's this third element, which is power. She has to be empowered. So if somebody isn't empowered, I, I, I like to say that, you know, I, my, uh, my lawyer is uh, my business partner, and he's a very high-character guy. Stan knows him, Jordan Clements. He's a very competent guy. But if I go to him and I say, Jordan, I really want you to keep me from having to pay capital gains taxes this year. I want you to do that. I trust you to do that. I'm trusting you. You're a high character, high competence guy. He'll fail. The, tr the trust is a naive trust because he's not empowered to do it. He, he can't change the law. So to trust somebody to do something they're not empowered to do is, again, naive and foolish. So I think if you'll think about trust in this very hard-edged way, that it's got to have all three of those things present, present for you to really be able to trust somebody and then you to be trusted have to live in a way that has high character, high competence, and empowered. And if you'll start to say, that's the formula that I want, what you start doing is you start selecting the people with whom you'll negotiate. Because you, you'll find that if you're dealing with low trust people or untrustworthy people, you'll get really tired of it. And you'll, you'll conclude, life is too short. I don't have to trust or work with whomever the world serves up to me. I'm going to start migrating my, and if it's taking a job, I'm going, to, I'm going to select people who are trustworthy to work with 
as mentors, as colleagues, or whatever. And if, and if we don't agree on those, I'm going to migrate into something else. I, I found that in, when I was uh, negotiating financial deals, I migrated away from a whole set of characters. I, I won't name the, uh, the investment bank. Am I going on too long on no, this stuff? Just stop me. Cut me off. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but I, I remember going to one of the big name brand investment banks uh, in New York. And uh, I won't name them. Uh, but it was like an elbow fight among the partners who were in the room trying to get airtime. And there were people with whom we'd done a lot of business. And I could tell after a while that they had no idea why I was there. We probably talked for 45 minutes, at the end of which they had all fought for airtime trying to show off to me, and I walked out without placing the order. And I decided, these are not people that I can really trust because they don't listen to me. They don't know what I want. There's not a, a, a trust relationship built up there. So I moved our entire book of business away from this bank to another. Uh, bank because of that. So what you'll find is as you move through organizations, you will move to where you are trusted and where you can trust them. Otherwise, if you're always having to refer to legal agreements, I think you have um, you've made your life shallower and you've made litigation more likely. You've made spinning on issues that aren't any fun or productive a big part of your life. So I would encourage you never go to the legal documents. You know, if you want a rule in negotiate, have negotiations so built on trust, so built on this, this profound nature of trust, this three, uh, uh, three foundation uh, element or uh, measure of trust, that you never really have to go to the legal documents. Now, that's an idealistic way to look at it. And by the way, I have a lot of legal documents in my life, and I refer to them every so often. But it's very rare that I'll get in a, in a tussle over the legal documents. Let's drill down on, on lawyers. The students just negotiated a case where they represented the business people, and we had law students represent the lawyers, and so they had a business person and an attorney, and a business person and an attorney. Right. And um, so we talked a little bit in class about negotiating with attorneys, negotiating against attorneys, selecting an attorney. Um, you and I have had that conversation. I'd love to get your perspective on, A, how you choose an attorney, because these guys are going to hire a number of different attorneys throughout their career. So what criteria do you think about and then what have you learned throughout your career about working with attorneys that would be useful for them to hear? Well, I, you know, the people make a lot of attorney jokes, and I, I've heard them all. Um, and, I, and I've felt all of the bad ways that people feel about attorneys from time to time. But I'm telling you, they are necessary, they're important, and if you get a great attorney, it's manna from heaven. It is the, I mean, it's so valuable. So I kind of think of attorneys in a number of categories. One is I think there are deal-making attorneys. There are deal-facilitating attorneys. There are the let's get it done, let's figure out a way to make it happen attorneys. I think you want one of those. You get people, and they're typically people who are not so ego-involved. You'll find that a lot of attorneys have big egos. They're attorneys because they're smart, they're good with words, they're persuasive, they like to debate. I mean, they have all of these things that can actually make them defeat what it is you're trying to do. So I think you have to find one whose ego is subordinate to the objective, where they really understand, we're here to make this thing happen. How do we make it happen? And they don't demand airtime. They're able to listen. They don't have to win an argument. You know, you get a lot of fighting with lawyers where they, they try to win in the documents. They, they redline the documents. They send it back and forth and fight in the documents. I don't let lawyers do that. I sit in the room with lawyers typically where there are lawyers on both sides, and talk through what it is we're trying to achieve and see if we can't hammer out a framework. 
And then it's their job to document the framework. There's a term that I don't like and don't use, but it's kind of in the back of my mind, and that is that the attorney is the scrivener. A scrivener is a person who takes notes, who writes, who keeps track of. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but I really want the lawyer to pass the deal through the sieve of the law, through all of the best practices of contract. But I don't want them in there negotiating the key points of the deal. I think that really, you really risk ego against ego. I found, too, that um, since Stan asked the question about how do you choose attorneys, I think there's a, there's a, a right age and a right stage uh, in an attorney's career where they are really great. I find that in the first five years of practicing law, they're like apprentices. And they don't know big from small, right from wrong, left from right. And they're in there learning. And they know a lot of things, but at the deal level, they can't be all that helpful. I also find that once they've been at it forever and they're managing a bunch of young lawyers, they're too far removed from the transaction. So you get senior partners in deals and they'll dust off documents and they'll ask big questions and they'll charge you $500 or $600 an hour. But they're not the people you want in there rolling their sleeves of it. To me, the world of the 30-something lawyer is where you want to be. Now, there's nothing hard and fast about that. But I just find, boy, by the time they're in their 30s, they've got all the experience they need to be really great, and they don't have these enormous fees, and they're not flying at 30,000 feet all the time and managing 50 deals, whatever. So I think there's kind of a right level. There's a right temperament. There's a right sort of ego. Uh, and there's a right uh, level of experience. That, so I think you want to think through that stuff. And then use them. I mean, don't be shy about having a turn. You will not do very good deals. You'll not do very good negotiations if you're uninformed by the issues of the law. They're too important. So we've got a couple people in here that will probably go to law school, but most won't. They are going to make a lot of career choices. Um, give your best advice to these guys about negotiating your career. And that could either be about career choices or specifically how important different elements of a package within a job might be, compensation versus other things, and what have you learned? You've had a number of different careers, so give us your best take on negotiating one's career. Well, there, I think there are two levels to think about. One is, is sort of a stance says, you know, thinking through, well, what is it you want to do? If you think about that as a series of conversations being in negotiation, you are really wending your way through a minefield to figure out what it is you want to do. I'll talk about that second. First, though, let me talk about sort of the, the more formal, strict negotiation of getting a job, getting a salary, setting up who you're going to work for and all that stuff. <clears throat> I would say to you that all the things that you think are important now are the things that aren't important. How much you make, what your bonus will be, where your office will be, all those kinds of things are really trivial in the long run. And a lot of people get hung up on them and they want to negotiate the last $5,000 of their starting salary. Which, by the way, I know when you're coming out of school and you've got debts, seems enormous. Uh, about a couple of years ago, we had a graduate student from uh, the business school over here that was going to come work for us. And he negotiated on the salary. I mean, back and forth and back and forth. And he was a guy we really wanted less and less. <laughs> and by the time he was done, you know, he was begging us for the job and we were introducing him to our competitors because he kept negotiating on these small... And we thought, this is a huge signal. This guy doesn't get the big picture. We're around here to make equity investments. You will make money as the people you invest in make money. You've got to have their interests. If you're, not, if you're just negotiating for yourself over and over and you don't pick up on the clues, 
you're not going to be successful at this business. So he, he migrated, he negotiated his way out of, a, out of a job that would pay him in the end a whole lot more than the one he ultimately took. So I, I think the most important thing that you do is to choose a mentor. Somebody who will have your interests at heart, who will take you under their wing, who will introduce you to the industry, who will correct you when you're wrong, who will be willing to say, hey, Nate, that thing you did wasn't effective at that last meeting. Let's talk about it. That's the kindest thing people can do for you because there are no percentages in it. Nobody likes to go and tell you, hey, we need to talk about that. If you find somebody who's willing to have the tough conversations with you, care for you through that, you've found gold. You ought to be paying them. So if, if I'm thinking about negotiating a career, not just a job, and I'd, I'd think, if I were in your shoes, think about career, not job. Career is way more important and gratifying than the first job. The first job is just a step you'll take. I would say, think about your mentor. Really think hard about that. And then negotiate the other items uh, so they're satisfactory to whomever you're working with. They have to win. And it has to be a good deal for them. If you've negotiated something that they didn't really want to give you and they finally caved in that, you will pay for that. I don't know when or where or how, but I promise you it won't be a win in the end. So getting somebody to lose in that kind of a negotiation is not a win for you. It will ultimately translate into a loss for you. So I think, I think it's in the, in the category of conversation where you really want to make sure the other party is winning. I would say, just going back to my initial comment on negotiation, I actually used to look at deals um, as to how can I help the other party win? What is it they want, and how can I help them get there? And just make sure I price it at a way that works for me, too. But I want to help them. If I can understand, I'll tell you another story uh, <clears throat> here, because it may relate. Yeah, I, I was negotiating with a fellow by the name of Ned Speaker. I don't know if anybody, any of you in the real estate area know of Speaker Properties. They since became equity office properties. Ned was my partner out here on the West Coast. It was about a billion dollars worth of property that, are, that we owned together as partners. Um, he decided to leave the Crow organization. And uh, he called me one afternoon in my office in Dallas and said, the guy that you've assigned to this negotiation is going to end us up in the courts. And so you need to personally get out here if you want this thing to avoid the courts. So I flew out and um, started negotiating this billion dollar transaction uh, with Ned. <clears throat> he wanted to agree on the value. He said the first thing we need to do is let's agree on the, there were hundreds of properties all over California. He said let's agree on the property values. It's kind of a logical place to start, don't you think? What, what do you start with? Well, let's start with values. Let's agree on the values. What did I say to him, you think? Because I'm a tough guy? Heck no. No, I said, uh, let's not agree on the values of the properties. Let, because both of us can win if we don't agree on the value of the properties. Why don't you just, why don't you evaluate the properties as you would, I'll go and make a selection of properties. And you put whatever your number is on it, and I'll just, Select. I'll select things that I think are worth more than you do. You know the properties better than I do, but I will pick what I think is a win for me. And as he thought about it, he said, you know, that really is a win. So we ended up doing this billion-dollar negotiation in a couple of weeks. Without acrimony, he and I then went on and coached our girls' soccer team together. You know, we, we've become good friends. Since that, which could have 
very easily tipped over into litigation because people had different rights on different things. If we'd agreed on the values, we had been tussling over the last million dollars. You know, it would have really mattered in that thing. And we just said, uh uh, let's just, let's not agree on the values so we can both win. So that idea of both winning, letting the other party have their victory, I think is a really important thing to think about if you want enduring agreements. Now, I can't remember, uh, you and I have talked a lot over the years about negotiation stories. I'm remembering one and sort of correct my memory, but it might have been him or, or another partner you had where you had some difficulties with that partner and you had a barbecue at their house and there was an accident with one of your children. And I thought that was an illustrative story if you'd want to share that. Yeah, well, actually, that was actually Ned Speaker. When I came out here, we were actually moving out to the West Coast. And we went to a barbecue and I had my, my son, who's now a sophomore at Stanford, was three years old at the time. <clears throat> and we were barbecuing, whatever, on his barbecue in his backyard. And it was a very nice way to say, let's remember we're partners. Let's remember we trust each other. We like each other. We're going to go into this high stakes negotiation tomorrow morning. But let's remember this about each other before we do this. So we're there. Our wives are talking. And all of a sudden, we hear this blood curdling scream. And this little three-year-old boy has been attacked by Ned's dog. And he's bitten into his cheek, and there is blood everywhere. And um, so we're, we're both feeling terrible <laughs> about this. But I think um, we decide that the most important thing is to get this little boy to the hospital. So we drive him over to Stanford Hospital. Ned calls a plastic surgeon. He knows it's, I think, a 4th of July weekend. He calls in all the chits he can get, brings this plastic surgeon, and the guy works till 2 or 3 in the morning on this little boy to put his face back together. <clears throat> and uh, we go back and show up the next morning. I call our in-house attorney in Dallas and tell her what has happened. And she says, you've got a $2 million lawsuit. You have at least a $2 million lawsuit. And you get a leg up in the negotiation. Once you do that, you've got a real leg up in these new... I mean, she saw it as maybe a nice little personal win for me, but it was a real leg up in the business negotiation. And I thought about it against these principles that I've just described to you about what makes for enduring agreements, what makes for high trust, how do you really get things done. And I thought, you know, that's not the way we're going to get this done. So I never brought it. I never mentioned it, never brought it. I even paid the hospital fees, you know which I could have easily, in fact, he asked me, he said, why don't you send me the doctor's fees? And I said, no, no, I'll cover it. Probably ought to send them to him now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a nice transition into talking about how, you know, there you're kind of in a business slash personal relationship, and right. sometimes there are overlaps. Um, a question that people often ask me is, do you negotiate differently in the workplace from social life, from home, from civic engagements, and you know, can you negotiate differently or do you have one style? No, I think like your conversations that you have. Do you have one style of conversation? No. When you're sucking up to Stan, you're really nice and everything. When, you know, I, I know you don't do that. But <laughs> I'm waiting for that to happen. So yeah, far, yeah. hasn't happened. You need to wear a tie in class. Yeah. They'll respect you a little I more. I figured you weren't going to wear a tie. Yeah. I wanted yeah. you to feel comfortable. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I was really just seeking to make you feel comfortable because yeah. I feel like you'd be casual. I didn't no, no, not me. No, you, you really do. It's like your style of conversation uh, that you have in your life. They really vary all over the board. I say that, you know, there, well, I, I really strive for win-win. Uh, with family members, I do a lot of win-lose. Where I lose, they win. Because, and I'm winning something else. 
I do that. In fact, I, I printed up tonight. If I can uh, read you this, this is an exchange of emails that I had with an 11-year-old daughter. So this is a couple years ago. She's 14 now. Um, and I'll read you both set of emails, and you can see the approach to this. You, you'll see in this that she's a pretty clever negotiator. She's already learned. Uh, I hope it's hanging around me, but you'll, you'll see a lot of negotiation from this little 11-year-old, and you'll see what I do in my response. And I think you'll see this is a negotiation. This is clearly a negotiation, but it's clearly one where I'm willing to lose. So here it is. Dear Dad, did you hear that I'm getting a rat? Won't that be cool? The pet store lady said that you can train rats to fetch stuff and stay. I wanted to get mice because they're cuter and they don't have a disgusting tail, but mice just run away and they never become your friends. Rats will sleep on you, and I'm sure, Dad, you'll become great friends with my rats. <clears throat> I'm thinking of naming them Ritzy and Scraps. See how she's getting hooked into this? Um, won't that be cute? And you can even see them when they are tiny babies. Take deep breaths if you're getting nervous. I will pay for them and the cage with my very own money. All you and mom have to do is buy the food, which really doesn't cost much. I have already done everything else. I think I'm ready. It's okay. I can take care of them. I've proven that I can take care of animals. I even sweep up the cat's barf. <laughs> I can handle it. So you can trust me to take care of Ritzy and Scrap. See, they have names now. We just know them. Um, <clears throat> I hope you are doing well there at Stanford. I'm doing well here. Same normal things practicing soccer, whining to mom about getting rats. Just so you know, she already said yes. <laughs> I'm sure she's sick of all the same conversations. Can I get a rat, mom? Please, I'll do my practicing. That's my secret in life. Promise to do my practicing. Love, Elise. So can you see all the little things thrown in there to negotiate her way? I mean, it's already approved. The board has already approved this thing. I'm just getting your little check mark by it. I'll take care of it. It won't cost you much. I mean, she's really laying out the thing so it went for me. So here's the sensitive dad response to this thing. Now, do you think I wanted her to get a rat? I mean, are you nuts? Dear Elise, are you nuts? I've been killing rats at the Woodside house. They're not cute. They're not nice. They're not controllable. They stink. They eat everything. They make little black poops everywhere. And I have to clean up the mess. Just this week, I brought some decon to put it out where the rats live in Woodside. The next day, I found a dead rat near the pool and another one trapped in the garage. Just to be clear about how I feel, I must inform you that we smashed its head in with a shovel. <laughs> I'm not a little surprised at this, actually. It was, it was fat and ugly. By the way, I think its name was something like Ritzy. <laughs> In any event, rats stink and spread disease. One of the big reasons I was so excited about coming home next week was to get away from the rats in Woodside. Now I might as well stay, huh? What would you like next, a python? Or how about some Ebola virus? Or maybe you could raise some fungus or maggots. Anyway, I still love you and I miss you and I will see you next week and your rats. So you can see this is one where there's a lot of back and forth. It's not, it's not unclear to her what my position is on the rats, but she knows she's got the rats. She won the negotiation. I celebrated. I fed the rats. I held the rats, you know, and celebrated these crappy little rats until finally she decided when they got big and ugly to get rid of them. So she took them back to the pet store and they fed them to snakes. <laughs> and she learned her lesson.
Uh, there's some rat lovers in here. Is that? I see some shocked faces. <laughs> a couple. So you're saying in general, in, in especially family situations, you don't always want to win. You certainly want the other side to feel like they won a lot of the time. I think wherever you believe you have a really long-term relationship, one that you're going to go back to over and over and over again, I think you want to make sure the other party wins. And I think sometimes that means losing yourself. And or particular, just giving them a rat. Or giving them a rat, which was losing for me. I mean, my instinct, I'm a very competitive, I see everything as a competition. If I'm not careful, I've had to train myself to look at this. So to me, I start out with a win-lose equation. I mean, I just think everything is competitive. I mean, I do competitive puzzle putting together. Everything is competitive for me. So I have to really train myself to think the other part, let the other party win. Make sure the other party wins. And I think it'd be interesting um, for you to talk a little bit about how that evolved. Um, when you started your career, there are two things I'd like you to talk about. Have you become more aware of sequential negotiations and a win-win attitude as you've gotten more experience? So that, that would be interesting. And then it'd also be interesting to go back a little bit and talk about career. You've told me some nice stories in the past about kind of how you saw your role when you started, for example, at Crow of kind of getting things done and you know, kind of doing anything. You told me a story once about sort of fixing the IT system and how sort of young people really need to focus on contributing by getting stuff done. So both of those things would be interesting to hear about. Well, in the getting things done thing, I think you will be hired for what you can get done because people don't know you and they don't know your capacity and they don't know all the things that you're going to bring. So it's really sort of the skill set that you've developed in the short run. So you become very much a task-oriented person. You're a deliverer of goods. You know, so you have to get good at that. And so early on in my career, I remember one of my first assignments, and I think this is probably where I transitioned. And it was fortunate, I just got lucky that it was early on. But I was given an assignment to raise uh, $10 million for an office building we had built in Paris on the eastern uh, side of the, of the city, a uh, commune called Bagnolet. Bagnolet was actually a communist commune in France. We'd built it in the wrong place. It wasn't a business commercial center, and you'll still see it if you go to, the, if you go to Paris on the eastern périphérique, the boulevard périphérique, you'll find at the Porte de Bagnolet two big office towers. Those are buildings we built. My very first uh, significant financial assignment was to raise $10 million to complete uh, the capital structure for this uh, project. Well, realizing that I'm a task guy, I got hired because I could get the job done, I immediately went about the process of building a spreadsheet such as they were in those days. We did them with VisiCalc or something. You don't even know what VisiCalc is, do you? Do you remember VisiCalc? I'm a little too young for that. Man, <laughs> I am a dinosaur. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, we built, so I built the model, I called on people and everything, and I decided before I finally raised, and I, I wanted to break the tape on this. I mean, this would be, this was a big assignment, and breaking the tape, by that I mean crossing the finish line with the 10 million bucks, I thought would be just a big pat on the head and likely for people to think, aren't we glad we hired this hotshot guy? You know, this is really the, the great thing to do. And I decided before I did that that I would read the documents. And I, 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 I sort of stress tested the project under various scenarios. I didn't go all the way uh, to do Monte Carlo simulations of, of various outcomes, but I really stress tested the lease up, construction costs, things that could go wrong. And I found that we had a problem that 10 million wouldn't be enough, that it would likely be 30 million. 
and that might not be enough, and that this project was in the wrong place. And I uncovered one thing after another, and as I read the documents in French, I poured through these documents in French, I discovered that uh, we were on the bottom, this won't mean anything to you maybe, unless you've studied finance, but we were on the bottom side of a guarantee, rather than the top side. So we didn't have liability until we flipped to the top side of the guarantee when certain things happened. In the meantime, we were primed in the liability structure of this deal by ICI Pension Fund, a big uh, commercial, uh, a big uh, chemical company in England, and National Westminster Bank, deep-pocketed people. And so I realized we didn't have any exposure at this stage. If we got the project up to being fully leased, however, we stepped into the liability. Situation. So I went back to the partners uh, who were giving me this assignment and I said, guys, we shouldn't raise this $10 million. We should not do this. We ought to go talk to these folks and give them back the project. Tell them that we, you know, we're going to have to raise it. We're going to make the thing more complicated. We'll still lease it up for you, but take us out of the ownership, which is in effect what we did. And so by not completing the task, by figuring that the task was something else, because I really started to think about it, I said, you know what do my partners really want? Is they want success. They, they've asked me to raise $10 million, but why? They've asked me to raise $10 million because they think that will lead to success. If I can better define what success will be and do that, then I will, I will really be more trusted. I'll be more likely to get more of these kinds of assignments, and that's indeed what happened. And um, so think, I guess, behind what people are asking you to do. What's their real objective? Now, there was another part to that question. The other part was just how over time, and this could be either in your business career, um, your personal life, you know, I, I bet your kids would say something like, I mean, I used to read one of your kids' journals about negotiation, so I got a little bit of insight on this. Um, but I'm guessing that, like most people, you've evolved um, in how you negotiate things, and you've said, look, I'm A, really competitive, and I know you as a pretty competitive person, but you're also saying win-win, um, and for a lot of truly competitive people, those work against each other, and that's a tough juxtaposition. So how have you transitioned, either in your personal life or your professional life, in terms of how you measure success in negotiations? Well, I, w I wish I could say that I've always kind of known this. I think I have deep down inside, I've always known it, but my instincts and my competitive juices would take over every time. And I remember uh, a couple of things. I remember playing basketball with my kids. I mean, these are little kids. I mean, they're like... 12 or 13 years old out there shooting the ball, and I'd stuff them, you know? <laughs> and, and they played horse with me one time, and one of the kids beat me, and I remember throwing the ball over the fence. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You know, I'm a grown man with all this business, and I'm mad at these 12-year-olds for beating me. Of course, they were taunting. You know, they were enjoying it a little too much. Uh, but I also remember playing Scrabble uh, with my wife. Uh, in France, we had a bunch of extra time because... I, I could tell you a long story about sort of how, how it came about, but I remember in the evenings, I would come back from this construction project. We didn't really have anything to, to do, so we'd sit and play Scrabble. And uh, we got really competitive in this Scrabble game. And, and so I thought I had beaten her in this game, and she, you know how you have, a one, is it, everybody plays Scrabble. Scrabble's not too... People still play Scrabble? Yeah. Well, you know how you have letters left over and you try to place those last letters and they don't count against you? She had an R left over and she put it on the word delve. So it was delver. One who delves. I said, there is no way that's a word. You know? And she said, yeah, it's a word. I'm sure you can turn anything like that into a, into a noun. I said, uh-uh. 
So I made us go to the, you know how you kind of break the tie by going to the dictionary? I went to the dictionary, and I remember just about, you know, doing one of these victory dances because Delver was not in the dictionary, you know? Well, she remembered this. We moved back to the States, and about three or four years later, we went with these Oxford dictionaries, one of these big puppies. So I'm sitting there eating one night. She opens up the Oxford dictionary. There it is, Delver. <laughs> so she won five years later, you know? Well, I think that spirit kind of was a part of my early life. I didn't differentiate. You know, I just, I liked winning whatever, whatever was in front of me. It was there to win. I mean, that's kind of what you learn in school. And by the way, you all have that disease big time because you've been batting uh, very high batting averages in your life. You know, you're not used to getting things wrong. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have very high batting averages. Uh, but I, I always tell my students, you get into the Baseball Hall of Fame if you hit 300. And I think in business, if you, if you don't have some failures, if you don't have some things where you don't hit it out of the park, you're not trying hard enough. So you really ought to expect them and relax a little bit around them and make sure others, others win. So it took me a while to learn it. It really did take me a while. Now, even though I was pre-wired to know this. I mean, I had a lot of, I'd read everything on it. I really believed that was the thing, but my... My gut took over every time. So the kind of gap between theory and action is sort of tough. pretty real. Very for you. real. Very real, very tough. It's taken a long, long time. And so what would you recommend to these guys? Most of them are going to start jobs. Some of them are even working now. How can they kind of skip steps that way? And what kind of specific things can they do in their jobs, whether it's you know, your one piece of advice was get stuff done. Um, but what can they do so they don't have to you know, wait till five years later to see who won in Scrabble. Well, I think having this roadmap, if you'll think about the roadmap of trust and its elements, and if you'll really try to help the other party win, I mean, the road, just having the roadmap and repeating it to yourself really helps. I think not shouting, not getting emotional, really keeping your emotional baseline at a low level really helps. I think taking breaks helps. I think sleeping on things helps. I've really found it to be a big thing in my life. It's just to, you know, we'll get to a certain point and I'll say, let's go sleep on it. And that has kept me from crossing swords a number of times. But I do think some of these things you only learn with experience. You only learn with failure, with time in the saddle. I ended up uh, in litigation, as Stan knows. Uh, <clears throat> and I was the least likely uh, person ever, I think, to end up in litigation. I was the guy who in our organization settled litigation for Every single the partner departure, uh, supplier, contract, every litigation, I went out and settled the litigation because I was good at listening. I was good at creating uh, options. I was good at kind of coming up with win-win solutions. And so I always figured out ways to settle the litigation. So I end up in litigation. I, I end up in the mother of all wars litigation at the end of my career. And I had to look back and say, how in the world did this happen? Well, you know how it happened was really I had developed the reputation of being a settler, of being a guy who finds out ways to make things work. So I had this had been, become my brand so powerfully that the other parties, when they wanted a win, they said, we can crush this guy. He'll settle. He'll give in in the end. And so they didn't really believe that I would stand up and fight him. And uh, so that was a, ter a terrible lesson from having learned all these good things. Yep. You know, it's how, how do you then say, there are principles upon which I stand and I will not move from this and you need to take me seriously on that. I did a bad job of that.
And I don't do that anymore. I re people really know that I am, uh, I have kind of a, the velvet glove on the iron fist. That I re and I make very clear where I stand, and people don't have any. And I think having been through litigation, this was four years of litigation, 14 days of videotape deposition, a week on the witness stand. You go through that in your life and you say, I'm not afraid to fight over this issue. You've got credibility. You've got a lot of credibility. So I have credibility as somebody who won't back down. And, but I wouldn't have had that, I think. I think if you went to anybody a year or two before the litigation or just the day before the litigation, they said, Peterson, he'll, you can work out a deal with him. He's a pushover. He'll always compromise. He'll always seek winning. Batna makes some sense. Very, yeah, it's critical. I think if you don't have a strong Batna, if you don't figure it out. I, I remember one of the toughest negotiations for me was uh, really kind of with my wife. When I first got out of uh, business school, I took a job in, in Europe uh, with the Crow organization. I was supposed to go to the French Riviera. Uh, <clears throat> doesn't that sound like what you want to tell your friends? Yeah, I took a job out of Harvard to go to the French Riviera. But it, it didn't work out that way. I took a job that migrated from the French Riviera to Lyon, which is an industrial city, uh, kind of in the big gray in France. And uh, we couldn't get financing for this project. So we had this project lined up, and we couldn't get a building permit, and we couldn't get financing. So uh, there I was with no, and my salary was to be drawn out of the financing on the project. I was a project cost. So I had no income. My wife was pregnant. She'd given birth uh, to, no, she wasn't pregnant. She'd given birth to our child. We couldn't afford, because I wasn't getting any salary, we couldn't afford much of an apartment. So our baby daughter slept in a cardboard box. This was actually written up in the Wall Street Journal at one point in time. We put a cardboard box in a closet, put our suitcase at the bottom up, put blankets on it, and this little baby slept in that. Uh, what else happened? Uh, not getting a building permit was part of the problem. So we, no financing, no building permit. I was stuck in France. All of the contacts that I'd made at Harvard were gone, uh, or they were 6,000 miles away. And my wife is wondering, what has this idiot gotten us into over here? And I'm actually thinking the same thing. What has this idiot done? And uh, so what do you do? How do you negotiate your way? And that's why I think about it. How do you negotiate your way out of a really bad situation. And so what I did was I had received a job offer from McKinsey, but McKinsey was thousands of miles away now and, and many, many months ago. So I called, I, I took the train, the TGV or whatever it's called, uh, up to Paris and called, cold called McKinsey and talked to them about that and got a job offer out of McKinsey. Now it was a job offer I didn't really want because I think it was to work in for the Libyan government out of Paris, you know, fly back and forth to North Africa. But it was a job offer, and it was an acceptable one. So I had a BATNA. And then I decided, rather than go to Crow and kind of threaten quitting or tell him I've got this job offer, just go to them and describe the situation and ask them for advice. So I just said, you know, here I am. I've got all these debts from school. I haven't received a paycheck in three months. We're stymied on the building permit. And, and they liked so much the way I handled it that they made things right with me. And long story short, within a year, I was treasurer of the company. Within two years, I was chief financial officer. And, you know, I mean, it really, because I had a good BATNA, because I'd thought it through, because I wasn't emotional, I negotiated myself into a better place from really an abysmal spot. I mean, stuck in Lyon with no money, 
I mean, I, you, and your baby in a cardboard box in a closet. And I mean, it was just, it was a terrible spot. So having that bat batna, though, was the starting point to getting my way out of it, to negotiate. And I use the word negotiation there because I want you to think really broadly about this idea. You are going to be negotiating for the rest of your lives. It's just, it is part and parcel of getting through life. So really get effective at it. <clears throat> great. I mean, those are great comments. Lots of other things we could talk about, but the students are probably itching to They're get asleep. into the conversation. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't see anyone sleeping yet. Um, it's because you've been talking instead of me. Uh, so let's open it up um, for the next half hour, 45 minutes, to just any questions you have for Joel um, that relate to either things you've said or other things that you're curious about um, of relating to negotiation. And I will repeat, since we're on video, the questions so that they're picked up on the tape. Um, you very much characterize yourself as competitive, particularly early in your career. Um, and we talked a little bit about um, how that changed, but the question is, is that different now, and what's the interplay between those two things? I think I'm every bit as competitive now. It's funny, I'm in a different industry. Um, I teach over at the business school, but I want to be the best, I, I really want to be the best possible teacher at the business school. I want to do the very best deals that are done. Last year we got the award, the, the runner-up award for the best deal done in private equity. Well, that hacked me off. <laughs> you know, I wanted the award for the best deal done. So, I mean, I still have this engine that runs at, at very high RPMs when it comes to competitiveness. I just have a much easier way about dealing with it. I think people matter so much. I mean, I, I spoke at the business school last week and I told people that my three biggest conclusions, the three biggest surprises for me came down to um, action, Trump's words, people, Trump things, action, word, people, things, and were you guys there? Do you remember the third one? I, I'm blocking that. I can't believe you don't remember. Uh, <clears throat> but, but it was a big surprise for me because you come out and you're very good. Oh, holes, Trump parts. Because you're very good at anal analysis, doing the breaking apart and analyzing things. Really, when it gets all said and done, it's going to be how you synthesize, how you put things back together. It's going to be your actions are going to be more important than your words. You're good with words now. You spend your whole life with words. You're writing. You're doing all that. Because in the end, when you're running a business or whatever, it's the actions you take. And I'll tell you a quick story on that if we have uh, time where I learned that particular lesson. And then people trump things. And you're good at, all you have is things now. You have a few relationships, but as you go on in life, you develop these really deep interpersonal relationships where you care so much about people. In fact, when you have children, I can tell you, you put them ahead of you. You'd give your life for your kids, and you do, every day. Uh, so those three switches come with time and experience. Even though I tell you that now, and you may buy into that now, it'll be time before you really know what I mean by that. But those were all really changes in me. So I, I rewired, kind of reprioritized my life around those three big surprises. So you've uh, got this self-described baseline of calmness. You've also talked about yourself competitively. What's the internal mechanism for how you reconcile that? I guess I, I run it through this idea of what's effective. And, it, you know, I mean, I don't let my emotions generally... I don't let them get away from me. Now, it's all relative, I think. I mean, if a kid beats you in basketball, that's worth losing it over, I think. I'm, I'm kidding. 
So there are some, some things where you probably do, but it's funny, it, to me, it is, the times that I've sort of lost it have been really trivial, silly things. I mean, they've not made any sense. Big stuff, you know, I've, people used to say about me, a bomb can go off next to him, blow off his left leg, and he'll stand there and just keep talking. And, I, and you know, for some reason, I figured out that that was way more effective. And because I wanted to win, because I wanted to be effective, I wanted to deliver the goods, I figured this is really a good thing to know. And, and, and I guess just watching people, you know, lose it, I always, I always thought that was so silly, just laughable almost. And I often would kind of laugh at them, you know, kid them, which didn't always work that well. <laughs> if you ever try to approach somebody when they're really mad and laugh at them. Especially if it's your wife and Scrabble. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, I think it is so very the, uh, true. Just repeating okay. quickly. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can summarize your comment, Kevin. You're really into Settlers of Catan, or you used to be. Uh, you play this with your friends, all different kinds of people, uh, especially Asian friends and white friends. And you find a difference. Um, that The Asian people that you specifically play with are more relationship-focused, where some of the Caucasians are more competitive. <laughs> Joel, what's your take? Did I get that right, Kevin? Well, I do think there are cultural differences. I think it manifests itself in a bunch of different ways. I was talking with, and I've done some business in, in uh, China. I've done business in Europe. And I see real cultural differences. And I do think, particularly Americans, I'm not sure if it's Caucasian or if it's American, but Americans tend to be way more episodic, way more get to the deal. And so often what I'll see with Americans who are in a negotiation is they'll say, let's get down to brass tacks. Let's start negotiating the elements of the deal. They haven't established the relationship. They haven't established the trust. They don't care about it. Guess what? It doesn't go any faster than when I was in China. They, you want to have three three-hour meals with somebody. I've never eaten so much shark fin soup <laughs> in my life. <clears throat> but, you know, and, and so you'll say, we are wasting all this time. You know, and you start to feel really antsy. And then you sit down to talk through the deal, and it goes very fast. It really goes very fast. So I don't, think it's, I don't think it's any different time. I just think it's a different level of relationship and trust and expectation of repeat business. So I think, I think it's maybe more American than it is sort of race or ethnicity. But um, cultures are, are a big part of the software. If you think about your own operating system, what are you carrying around in there? A lot of it you don't really realize. It was written when you were tiny. You don't really realize, the more you can figure out what your operating system is, and the very observation that you've made, just to know that about a bunch of it, the more effective you'll be. So in the real estate industry specifically, what have you learned that has helped you minimize transaction costs? You know, I think the realization that you're dealing with a virtual organization there, and by that I mean you don't have, all of these people don't report to you. There's not a line authority. So your contractor, your subcontractors, your architect, your attorneys, the city planner. I mean, you could go down and there really are 30 people who touch a real estate deal from, you know, a piece of land all the way to an income-producing property that's being managed by professionals and asset managers. So, I mean, it's a lot of people involved, and you don't control any of them. There's no reporting relationship where you can push them around. And so I think... In a sense, what that does is really teach you some very good things. You've got to have good relationships with them. You can't fire them all the time. You're gonna, and if you do a good job, they're going to be repeat businesses. So I think people in real estate, and real estate is it's, it's an interesting business because, you know, real estate contracts, 
aren't valid unless they're in writing. So you can have other contracts that are oral contracts, but real estate, there's this thing called the statute of frauds, which has nothing to do with fraud. But if you, if you, have, if you don't observe the statute of frauds and have your contract in writing, they're not valid real estate contracts. And yet, real estate is the most verbally uh, done business you'll ever see. There are deals, handshake deals all over the place, and it's because people have dealt in this virtual organization world. I think once you do that a bunch, you reduce transaction costs a lot because you regard everything as serial. You're going to see these people again. And I would say if you don't see them again, you'll still see them again because they'll talk with Joe and Bob and Frank and Mary, and you'll see them again through others' eyes. So you realize that it's a small world in real estate. It's a very tiny market. But when I kind of got to the top of the industry, I felt like I knew everybody in the industry. And I wasn't that old. And so reputations go around. So the more you realize, and guess what? That's true in your industry, too. You get the top of any industry, there are not very many people there. And your reputation is so sticky. And it's sticky one way. It takes a long time to build it up, act by act by act, by person by person, by deal by deal by deal. And one mistake, and you've undone your reputation. It's very hard to recreate. So I think if you keep all of that in your mind, the odds are that you won't, you won't blow it when it comes to creating big transaction costs. Just quickly, um, when there are power imbalances, are there specific strategies? Um, Claire says that she sometimes gets emotional. How do you avoid that, and what strategies have you used when there are power imbalances? You know, it's funny. The person that gave the uh, speech at the business school before I did this last week was talking about um, power and how people in power act. And, they, and how they kind of abuse others. They're not, they're not paying that much. So they do everything they can, as it were, to make clear the power imbalance. And one of the examples that uh, they gave was uh, people with power getting up and doing awkward things. You're sitting there at the table talking, and the person that's in power will get up and do some awkward thing. You know, I mean, go pick their teeth or something. Uh, you know, in the midst of a conversation. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I remember a situation like that where, uh, and this is a story I told, so excuse me if you've heard this, Barish. But uh, I had a guy that was very powerful in our organization that I would talk with across the table like this. We'd be sitting there talking, and um, he had a bad back, and so he would get up from time to time and just lie down on the other side of the table, <laughs> on the floor. And so I'd be sitting here, we'd be having a conversation, all of a sudden he'd disappear. And he said, just keep talking. So I'm talking to an empty chair. You know, well, there, there's a real message. He's given me the message, I'm powerful, you're not. You're staff, you're reporting to me. I can lie on the floor and talk to you. And you have to sit in the chair and talk to me while I'm on the floor. You know? And so what I did in this case was I got up and went over on the floor and lay down next to him. You know, and just started talking that way. And it was so funny. And a, a, an assistant walked in the room, and I mean, she must have wondered, <laughs> what the heck is going on? But I think having a sense of humor, I mean, it, it's really sort of seeing the long term, having a sense of humor, uh, not granting people power because they claim it. I think a whole lot of the power that you have, you have inside of you. I mean, I, I pulled this woman aside afterwards who's the professor who's been studying power her whole life, and I said, you know, it's a funny thing, but I've always felt powerful. I, I've just, I've felt powerful. 
um, it's kind of built in. And so here I am. I'm really a very low-level, lect part-time lecturer at the business school. And there are all these Nobel Prize winners, tenured professors, scholars, brilliant people over there. And I'm a, I'm a hack. I go out and you know, do real estate deals or whatever. But I've never felt unempowered there. And it's because I, ha I've, I have this sense inside of me that I'm valuable. I've got things to add. I'm going places. I can make a difference. So my self-talk, I guess, is one that just won't allow somebody to have power over me. I just won't let it happen. So it may be a software issue where you kind of have to back up and rewrite a little bit of the software. So the question is, how, what were the motivators and how did you get started? You obviously have had a business career, at least initially you did that. What, what were the drivers in that process and were there any demarcation spots? Well, my dad was a PhD uh, plant breeder, geneticist, and he wanted his kids to go into science. And so I knew it was a big disappointment to him. That he had three sons go to Harvard Business School, and he was disappointed his whole life that, you know, that it happened. It's a tough family. It's a very tough family. So um, I did, when I was 11 years old, I, st I planted a vegetable garden in our backyard uh, plot and grew vegetables and then went around the neighborhood and sold vegetables. And I made eleven. I made fourteen dollars that summer, which you know, a long time ago, fourteen dollars is like fourteen hundred dollars today. And uh, we found a letter to my grandmother a number of years later, which said, uh, "Dear Grandma, I had a great summer this summer. I sold vegetables and made fourteen dollars. And my younger brother Ted helped me, and I paid him a nickel." <laughs> Now, that should have been the clue. <laughs> Somebody should have said to me, you have a future in business. <laughs> um, Tell the story, just let me interject here. Um, I don't remember if it was Ted or one of your other brothers, but just to get a sense of how competitive this family is, uh, when Ted tried out for baseball and didn't make it, what was his Oh, no, this is Tom. This is my youngest brother, uh, who tried out for Little League Baseball, got cut from the team, and so he went around to all of the stores in town and got sponsors to generate a new league. <laughs> this is like an 11-year-old kid. You know, okay, I'm not on your team, watch this. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's, I think there's something in us that uh, does that. But seriously, when I graduated, uh, not from undergraduate, not knowing what, I, I graduated from undergraduate thinking, I'm gonna take the uh, uh, GMATs, the business school boards, the law school boards, and what at the time was called the GRE, the graduate records exam. Is it still? And whatever I do the best on is where I'll go. And I happened to do the best on the graduate records exam, at, but I did really well in math. In fact, I did so well in I did higher in math than a guy that got into the PhD program at MIT in math, and I had not taken any math. So I figured there's something wrong with this test. I mean, I got, it's one of those things where, you know, some statistic will say, if you guess a bunch of times, you know, you're, so I was way out, three standard deviations away from where I should have been. And uh, so I decided, now the business school one is one that I really do. So I'll go to business school. I went right out of undergraduate school to business school. So I had no background, no training. I didn't know a debit from a credit. I didn't know anything. I got through that thing and I didn't know that I wanted to go into business. It was still this foreign language to me. And so I enrolled in a PhD program across the river at Harvard and was thinking that I would uh, get a doctorate when I got this job offer to go to the French Riviera. I thought, 
that is too cool to pass up. And so I got into business by complete accident. There was no strategy. There was no forethought. There was no plan. It was not insightful. It was just dumb luck. And I was surprised, really genuinely surprised, that I liked it. And I was stunned that I was pretty good at a few things in it. It was just a shock to me. I was way more naive than any of you, way less prepared than any of you is for whatever it is you want to do. I, I was really naive. So there's hope. There's hope for anybody. <laughs> anybody who's feeling like I'm not sure what my next step is. If I could, if I could rewind my life and you could look at me, you'd say, oh my gosh, if that clown made it, I got an easy road to hoe. So on the mentor front, it uh, sounds like a good idea, but how do you find the right mentor? I think there's a small element of it that is the thinking part. You know, what would the characteristics be? What do I need? What does this person provide? I think that's a tiny part of it. You know when you've hit it off with somebody. I mean, every one of you knows within a couple of minutes of hitting it off. Has anybody read the book Blink? Malcolm Caldwell, I think his name is. Gladwell. Gladwell. Uh, he talks about this thin slicing and how we, we pick up, and I think one of the stories he tells in this book, at, at least I, he either told it in the book or he told it in, the, in a New York Times, or a New, York, New Yorker magazine article. So have you told this story? This idea of, they, they filmed the professors at Harvard to see who, who related well to, the, who the students liked, and they did like a 10-minute segment of the teacher teaching, and then they did a segment with no sound and voted again, had another group of students voted. And then they did one that was like 20 seconds long with no sound and voted again. And the order of who the students like came out the same. In other words, they were picking up nonverbal cues in their thin slicing of this experience. They picked up things that said, ah, we relate to this guy or gal. We really like this person. We think we can learn. So there's something in that. So your gut, your instinct, you know, when you go on a date, you know within a few minutes. I mean, I went on a blind date. One, I probably shouldn't tell this. I went on a blind date one time with a woman, and I could tell within five minutes that this was going to be not only miserable for me, but miserable for her. And so I said, you know, there's really probably no reason to spend the whole evening together. So I took her home after five minutes. My kids are appalled at that. But to me, it was just the logical thing to do because I knew. And so I think you really know. Mentors are obvious. So the whole Batten idea applies to even dating. Absolutely, everything. <laughs> I, there was a great basketball game on that night, so I went home and watched the basketball game. <laughs> so we talked about how to, how to deal with difficult people, but what about the other side when people are extra easy or maybe even just soft styles of negotiation? Are they effective? Because I think, I think some very soft, easy people are really quite effective. Others can be taken advantage of. Uh, the ones you can take advantage of. People that can be taken advantage of. Yeah, you know, I think you have to, you really have to decide where you want to go on that. Some people think, you know, that taking advantage of people is really how you win commercially. I think that's a reputational thing that will come back and get you. So I don't think you want to take advantage of someone. You know, I had a, the, the smartest guy that I ever negotiated with, I mean, really a very smart tough businessman in New York who had done deals forever. He'd been a finance guy forever. Um, <clears throat> cut a deal with me and uh, came back the next, he called me up the next day 
And he said, Joel, I think what we negotiated on this wasn't really fair to you. It wasn't really fair to you. We ought to change that element of it. Well, guess what that did in our relationship? I mean, I for, this is one of my mentors in life. We've, we've climbed Kilimanjaro together. We've done all kinds of... He is somebody that I would trust forever because he came to me having taken advantage of somebody who was really too soft on an issue. I didn't really understand the issue or I didn't push back or whatever. He took advantage. And he recognized that and he came back and changed the deal. And that was one of the more powerful statements. And I, start, I found myself starting to look out for him. And he was, or if something went wrong in the transaction, it was unexpected, I made it right with him. And uh, so I think you, you have to draw the line where you have to draw the line. But my advice would be draw it at the line of fairness. You know, kind of do it where you would like to be treated. Do that to them and that brand, your brand will follow you forever as being that kind of a person. So in family negotiations, how do you keep emotions out of it or what do you do and how do you manage emotions in family situations? Well, I think the part of the issue is they, they, they know you well and you know them well and you're right at the core of your emotional life. So you're, you're most vulnerable there. So I think it's really, I think, I think you've identified a really hard problem and I like to get out in front of it. So, um, and actually this is the only thing I'm better at than my wife is in dealing with kids, but I am better at the teenage years because I am willing to sort of let them go and, you know, and where she still tries to be their mother and control them and everything. So I try to get way out in front of that, you know, allowing them their dignity. And, and I, I tell them a lot that I love them. And I hug my kids a lot. And I regard that as sort of putting a deposit in the account that later on, you know, they're going to feel like, Oh, rats, I can't be as angry at the old man because he's so nice to me and he loves me so much and he tells me all the time how he loves me. So I really believe in this idea when you don't have to, when, when you're not negotiating, when you don't have to make deposits, just keep piling them in, you know, just help people out, be kind, tell them you love them, listen when you don't want to. And then there'll come the time when you do have to negotiate and you'll have a little bit of a cushion there. But otherwise, I, th I think you've identified a really tough problem that I don't know the answer to. When dealing in different cultures, um, and you talked a little bit about that before, do you adjust your style based on their culture? I do at the superficial level. There are some niceties. There's some areas of etiquette. There's some seating arrangements. There's some where do we meet to negotiate. There's the, the style of the table, who you bring. All those things, I think, are trivial elements but important to people and so I think you want to be sensitive to all of that kind of stuff. I don't change my framework. I don't change my values. I don't change that I'm trying to help them get what they want to do at a price that's reasonable for me. So my, my big map is exactly the same and, and I'm really quite open. I tell people what it is I want to achieve and uh, I, try to, I try to establish uh, if, if the issue is the price, I don't try to establish one early on that I think is fair. And, and it may be within a few percentage, but I try to set the price early on. I think, it's, I think it's often very difficult if you let the other party set the price. It often is a kind of an anchoring move. And so I like to anchor the discussion around a price that I think is fair, not a lowball one. So I, I don't change that kind of no matter what I'm in. Unless the other party tells me, like this one example I said, I like to horse trade. 
I want to get some kind of a discount. Wink, wink, why don't you knock the price up a little bit so I can get a discount? I'll play along with that. But it's with a wink, wink. I mean, I, I'm really not fundamentally changing. Other than the etiquette kinds of things. Have you been in a, a relationship or a negotiation where trust has been lost and then you encounter the person again and what do you do to try to build trust when it's a little bit in a deficit position? Well, I think you need to decide whether or not you want to build trust again. I think there are some relationships where there's such a betrayal of trust that you may both decide, why with all the relationships you can have in the world would we go back and try to do this really hard work of rebuilding trust? Because you have to start at a foundational level and build brick by brick over time. And it may not be worth it. Now, if it is worth it, then I think you have to start by saying, this is going to be tough work. We're going to have to go back and listen a lot to each other. Your question about have I ever been in one like that, the, the guy that I ended up in litigation with was an 18-year partner of mine. We had been the trustee for our children's trust. We had shared everything. We'd traveled the world together. We'd built this company together. I mean, we were in many ways best friends, brothers, whatever, and we ended up in litigation with each other. And uh, I've had to decide, do I want to try to rebuild? Because I've had dinner with him a couple of times since then, and I've decided there is a level at which I want a relationship, but there's a level at which I really don't care to go again. And, and a, a lot of it is the nature of the breach. You know, if it's that the person was late for a meeting, I think you can probably forgive that and rebuild that. If it is the kind of thing that I experienced, I think you say, you know, I don't think it's really something I want to rebuild. So if for business reasons or other you have to have a relationship, you don't necessarily get to choose, how would you build the trust? Yeah. I, I think it's very tough to build the trust. If you, if you have to do it and trust has been lost, but you still have to do it to complete a commercial transaction or something like that, I would go in and suck it up. Just say, you know, I've got to do this. I've got to get it done. We both want to achieve it. I would very much talk about what is it we're trying to achieve? How do we achieve it? What's a win for both of us? But not look to have the kinds of feelings that at the end of the day, we'll both adjust because the trust has been lost. At the end of the day, the deal is what the documents say the deal is. So I think then you're in kind of a raw, bare bones uh, we're trading these five elements and we're just making an economic trade. Neither of us is going to adjust. The papers are going to be what they are and we're both going to go to the papers if we need to. You want to avoid as many of those as you can, but you will run into some of them. And I think to go back all the way to the beginning and try to rebuild trust so you don't have to do that is probably unrealistic if trust has really been broken. So... Can you talk a little bit about mentors, and maybe expand that a little bit to just people that have influenced you a lot in your career, in addition to maybe your mentors? Yeah, I had, uh, I had mentors in the form of partners. So people taught me the real estate business, taught me the legal business, taught me... There was one particular guy, it's the same fellow who was the trustee of my children's trust that I ended up in litigation with, was a wonderful mentor. I mean, he taught me so much, took me under his wing, and... I mean, it was a very deep learning relationship. <clears throat> I also had mentors that reported to me. So, uh, and, and I think you can, this is a really important thing to think about. Is everybody has something to teach you. And to the extent you're willing to be humble and say, you know, help me with this, 
you'll find mentors all over the place. There was a, a particular guy in our organization. I, I learned in the real estate business that the, at this particular time that there were tax-oriented financings that were really important to do, that we could do, we could specially allocate depreciation and losses to get better financings. This was complicated capital account. We've got a CPA up here who could tell us all about this. But for me, coming out of, of business school, I didn't know how to do special allocations and adjust capital accounts and do elections and all that stuff. So I had a guy that was just out of, of uh, Price Waterhouse uh, teach me. He took me through T accounts and capital walked me through the thing until I really got it. And I ended up becoming very good, becoming almost expert in this whole area and raising hundreds of millions of capital based on my understanding of how this whole thing worked. Well, this fellow was a mentor to me. He really taught me a lot about that and became a good friend. So I think you can look all over for mentors. And, it, and you should be, when you're not in a, in a receiving position, be in a giving position. Be a mentor to others. It's sometimes really selfless work, but it's almost always in the long run really rewarding. So the things that you've mentioned were um, more skills-based than, say, big picture and, and values-based. Are there people that you'd add to that list that really shape your thinking about, you know, you, you very much tonight talked about your ethos of integrity and relationship matters, and did that come from within, or were there people that really influenced you that way? A lot of people influenced me. Most of them I've never met. Um, and by that I mean, you know, find some people that write. You can live a, a hundred lives by reading, and so do it. Find people, I mean, Peter Drucker is a great mentor to have. Um, Marvin Bauer, who's the founder of, uh, one of the founders at McKinsey, and a senior partner at the Jones Day Law Firm, is a fabulous mentor. He had an enormous influence uh, on me and my thinking. Uh, so I think there's some great mentors out there that you'll never meet. Get to know them. Read everything they wrote. So you've uh, talked about the sense of power you have from within. Everybody doesn't necessarily have that gift. Is it transferable? Is it teachable? Is it learnable? Probably to some degree. I, I think because people's software learned at their mother's knee for so many years is so powerful that you're going to have a hard time bringing people too far along that, but I think you can have a lot of influence, nonetheless. You can make a difference. And I think it starts out by respecting them. I mean, you really empower somebody if you let them know that you respect them. And how do you let somebody know you respect them? I think you do it by listening to them. And, and by that, I don't mean you're just quiet while they talk. I mean you understand. You seek to understand what it is they're saying. And you listen to capture what it is they're saying, that expresses more respect than almost anything else. And so I think if you can really say, I want to understand what you're saying, you've empowered that person. You've given them dignity. And, they, and you can start to lift their self-esteem in a way that they may be able to rewrite some of the software, which is a good thing for both of you. Great. Well, on uh, behalf of the class, just want to thank you, Joel. It's been excellent to hear your words of wisdom. And thank you for spending the time with us. My pleasure. Thank you.